If you have your Bible, would you please turn with me to Mark chapter 8, finishing Mark 8 this morning, going into the first verse of chapter 9. Finish this statement for me. No pain, no gain. You guys know that. You've heard that before. So I have a question. How many of you have either started, restarted, or continued some sort of extra exercise program? We're at the end of the month of January. How many of you? Okay. I won't ask you why the rest of you. Um, we, well, I said or continue. I said or continue. Let me, let me back up. How many of you have started, restarted, or continued some sort of exercise program? Okay, that's good. You can put your hands down. You understand that there is a cost to that. That's really where I'm going. There is a cost to that in terms of time, for sure. For some of you, money, if you pay for a gym or equipment or, or need special clothes or shoes or whatever the case may be. And if nothing else, that, that time factor, that inconvenience that you experience from it, there, there's a cost to it. Sometimes you run that cost. Do I really want to do this today? Why are you doing it? Well, you're probably doing this for rewards. And whatever those rewards are in your mind, either better health in general, or you're going to look better, or you're going to feel better, or whatever the case may be. Maybe you're doing it because you want to spend time with somebody else. It may be all of those things, but you're doing this not just for the sake of whatever pain and discomfort and inconvenience. You're doing it because there's a purpose behind it. Today we're going to continue our study of this central portion of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to look further and expand on this idea of the cost of discipleship. The theme, as I've shared with you even last week, is that Jesus is the suffering servant, and we're exploring his call and the cost of being his disciple. There is a call and there is a cost, and we're focused again today on the cost but even as I say that, I want you to know that there is a reward. There is a cost to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what life teaches, if you have walked with him any length of time. But it's worth it. So a lot of what I'm going to say today isn't going to be touchy-feely, feel-good kind of preaching. It hasn't been as I studied it. It's probably not going to be as you hear it today. But it is biblical truth, and there's a goal. There's a result. There's an end in mind. Let's stand, please. I'm going to read these verses for us, starting in verse 34. We have six verses for today. Verse 34 says, And when he had called the people to him, with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, these are your words. 
And we are so glad to know that you are present with us this morning. And we pray that you would be present with power, that your Holy Spirit would minister your word to us, that you would teach your word to us this morning. Lord, these are your words. This is the living word of God. And it has a message for us this morning. So may we listen. May we prick up our ears and be ready to hear what you have for us and to respond to it today. Whatever you show us, Lord, may we be willing to do. May we be your disciples. May we be your followers. Lord, I ask for your help, the help of your Holy Spirit, that I would teach your word accurately and boldly this morning and that you would accomplish your will through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, we talked about Peter's confession and Peter's correction. He said one of the greatest statements in the Gospel of Mark, really, in the entire Bible, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. But he didn't understand what that meant. And in correcting, we have that great confession, in the correction that Jesus offered him, he said, this is what Messiah looks like. I am going to be killed, and I will rise again the third day. Jesus taught his disciples that it was necessary for him, the Messiah, their master, to suffer and to die. And that wasn't what they expected to hear. But then he explained further, probably shocked them just as much, maybe more so, that they were going to suffer and had to be willing to die as well. There are two main points I have for you this morning. First is that following Jesus is costly. That's that first verse. The key verse of this passage is verse 34. Following Jesus is costly. But I want you to understand and remember that following Jesus is worth the cost. It's worth it. And we'll see that in the four verses that follow. I said that Verse 34 is central. It is the key verse. So within that, there are three questions that I want you to ask yourself as we study through this material. Have you denied yourself? Have you taken up your cross? Are you following? Are you following Jesus? We'll come back to those questions. They're, of course, coming straight from verse 34. I want to review, starting in verse 27. I won't go into much detail. Preached this material last week, but I want us to remember the context of where these verses come. So look at verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? That is the important question. You must decide for yourself, every person in this room, anyone listening or watching online, for ourselves, we must determine who is Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? Not to your grandma, not to your pastor. Who is Jesus? What do you personally believe about Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he your Savior? Verse 29 continues, Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Good job, Peter. That's the right answer. You are the Messiah. We talked about that. Christ is the New Testament version, the Greek, Messiah is the Old Testament, the Hebrew word. They both mean the anointed one, the one that was promised, the one who would come to be the rescuer. 
Verse 30, then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that is an equivalent term for the Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That would have caught them off guard. What did they expect the Messiah to do? To come and throw off their bondage to Rome, overthrow Rome, and start his kingdom. That's what they expected Messiah to do. And instead, Jesus is saying, I'm going to suffer and die. That would have short-circuited them. That would have made no sense at all. Notice that he also said, I will rise again. They didn't understand what that would mean. We'll come back to that next week. Verse 32, he spoke this word openly. He is speaking to them very plainly here. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned and looked around at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Unknowingly, Peter is speaking ideas from Satan. You say, really? Yes. That this Messiah would rule and reign without the cross. That's a satanic concept. And Jesus rebukes him for that reason. But it wasn't enough for them to hear that their Messiah, their master, their leader, their rabbi was going to die. Now he tells them even more. Each time we have this description from Jesus, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, he mentions, I'm going to rise again the third day, and then he teaches them something about discipleship. We'll see it all three times when we get these passages in 8, 9, and 10 of Mark. So he was about to tell them that they were going to go through similar things. And that brings us to our first point for this morning. Following Jesus is costly. I want you to understand a little bit of the structure here. Because we have five verses in chapter 8 and then one in chapter 9. So the structure looks like this. We have a main statement, and it starts off, whoever. Whoever wants to follow me, here's what it needs to look like. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But then he gives reasons. Depending on what translation you have, all of those next verses, 35, 36, 37, 38, may start with the word four. Probably three out of four of yours do, if not all four. These are the reasons for the statement that he makes in verse 34. And then the conclusion, a reassurance, a confirmation when we get to the first verse of chapter 9. So let's look at this main statement. The main statement is verse 34. That's the key verse. He says, I'm paraphrasing, I want you to follow after me as my disciple. If you want to follow after me as my disciple, you have to do three things. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and continue to follow me. You say, I know this, Bob. I've heard this preached. I've studied this. I know this. Me too. I've heard it preached. But the way this rolls through in Mark is different from the other passages. And it's frankly something that I had not noticed till I studied it this week. The context of this one that we're studying today has a different bent to it. And I'll, I'll talk about that. Let me read verse 34. When he had called the people to himself... With his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We need called the people. What people? I don't know. He had crowds nearby just about any time. Were they primarily Jewish or Gentile? I don't know that either. 
but there were people close enough that he invited them to come hear what he was going to say along with his 12. They'd gone up north to Caesarea Philippi. It would have been more Gentiles than Jews as compared with the, the southern part of Israel, but I don't know. Whoever it was, they were eager to hear what he had to say, and he wanted them to hear it. So he said, gather around. I have a word for you. Whoever, or some of your translations say, if anyone desires to come after me. It's a conditional statement. It's an if statement. It presupposes that there were some who wanted to come after him. There were some who wanted to be his followers, his disciples, who had that desire in them. It's nice that it's stated this way because it's a challenge, it's an invitation to individuals, each of you individually, but it's open to anyone. If anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, here's how it works. Here's what's required of you. That's what he is beginning with. And then he makes the first prerequisite. Deny himself. He must deny himself. Young's literal translation says he must disown himself. Someone said denying self means to live an others-centered life. Jesus was the only person who ever did that perfectly, but we're supposed to follow in his steps. Let's explore what this means. This type of disciple isn't making decisions based on his own interests, not on his own desires. Those are no longer the supreme ruler of his life. Let me put it this way. It means I'm no longer the center of my world. In order to be Jesus' disciple, we have to come to that place, that I'm no longer the center of my world. And most of us understand this, whether it's you had a child who was 18 months old or you have a younger sibling, you can relate. Maybe you're playing with a toy. Maybe you're rolling a ball back and forth. If you reach out to take that away, what is the kid going to say? Mine. Did any of you parents have to teach your children to say mine? Anybody? Nobody's raising your hand. We do that instinctively. And it just obviously comes out in a child. Mine. I want it. Mine. And that's how we tend to view our lives. It's mine. It's my time. It's my money. It's my possessions. It's my agenda. It's my five-year plan. And having that mindset is incompatible with being a disciple of Jesus. So if we could get past the mine and realize that it's his, it's his life to use however he wants it. It's his money. It's all his that he's put into my care. It's his time in my days, in my weeks, and my years. And it all belongs to him. It's a very different mindset. By default, we look at it as mine. By the help of the Holy Spirit, we begin to understand that it's his. I found this definition in one of my commentaries. Self-denial is turning away 
from the idolatry of self-centeredness. It's saying no to self-interests and earthly securities. It's not denying who you are. It's not, oh, I think I have these gifts and these talents and these abilities, so I'm going to deny myself and I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm going to find something that I hate. No, that's not what it's about. It's not denying my personality. It's also not denying things. There's a term you may or may not have come across called asceticism. This is similar to what John the Baptist did. He was out in the wilderness, and he ate bugs, and he wore rough clothes, and he was denying himself in that way. That's not necessarily what we're called to. You are not a better disciple or a holier person if when we have a fellowship meal later, you say, no, I don't want anything. I'm just going to fast while y'all do this. That's not what Jesus did. He went to weddings, parties. He ate. He enjoyed the elements of this world. He wasn't trying to separate himself from them or deny himself from any fun, any enjoyment. That's not what Jesus did. It's not what he's asking us to do. But what is the motivation? What is the agenda behind it? This is the denial of self turning away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. Turning away from every attempt to arrange your life only according to your self-interest. So now we're getting somewhere. We're getting to an understanding of what self-denial means when Jesus said that's what we have to do. It is similar to repentance. Well, what's that? We talk about that often, don't we? Repentance is making a U-turn. It's a change of mind that results in a change of action. When we came to Christ, we had to change our minds. When we come to him for salvation, we must turn away from something and turn toward something. And normally when I explain that to you, I say, we must turn away from our sin and turn to God, which is exactly true. That's an accurate statement. That's theologically sound. But in light of this passage, I'm wondering if I could say it just slightly differently. In order to come to Jesus as Savior, in order to find salvation in him by faith, I have to turn my back on myself and turn toward him. I believe that's what Jesus is saying in this verse. Now, wait a second. You mean this passage is for unbelievers? I thought we were talking about being disciples. We are. But as you look at the context of this statement of Jesus in Mark, I believe that this is talking about an invitation to unbelievers. Why do you think that, Bob? For one thing, he invited the crowd to listen in. He's not talking just to his twelve. For another thing, we're going to see statement after statement in those four reasons, in the four verses that follow, talking about your soul. Talking about gaining your life, losing your life, saving your life. Pay attention to those phrases as we look down through. For example, 35, whoever desires to save his life. Verse 36, whoever will profit if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul. I don't know of anything I can do as a disciple of Jesus to lose my soul. Do you? I'm not aware of that. I believe in the eternal security of the belief of the believer that if I am saved, I am trusting, he gives me grace, and I will continue to trust in him. So this passage, it's okay to apply it to us as believers. I'm not saying if you're a believer, don't listen to anything else I say today. 
What I am saying is the primary context of this statement of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, I believe, is given to those who don't have saving faith, who are coming to him for salvation. Second statement. We must deny ourselves. We must take up our cross. Someone said this reveals the extent of self-denial to the point of death if necessary. This is the point we must reach if we are convicted of sin and wanting help to turn to God. Being willing to die. I don't know how many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress or you're familiar with it. But it's an allegory written by John Bunyan explaining the main character starts off being called Pilgrim and he has this enormous weight, this enormous pack on his back and it symbolizes his sin. It is an enormous burden and he can't get it off. He can't get rid of it. He can't lighten it. And he comes to the point that he is so burdened by his load of sin that he's willing to give up everything. He's willing to leave family, leave comforts, leave home and begin this pilgrimage to try to do something. Someone has to be able to help me. And he follows the instructions. And it's a long story. It's a good, good read. It's worthwhile. But it explains how he gets rid of his sin. How does he get rid of it, folks? Let's just do the spoiler. How does he get rid of it? He comes to a place. He comes to the cross. He comes to the cross and he gets rid of his sin. But he is so burdened by it. We, in order to come to Christ for salvation, need to be willing to submit to him. We need to be willing to admit, I can't do anything about my problem. I cannot do anything about my problem of sin, and I need someone to do something for me, and Jesus has. Now, what about the cross? The cross is mentioned here. Take up your cross. Well, we have a different idea. We sometimes decorate churches. We sometimes have a cross on a chain, a necklace, jewelry. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but that's not the context of that time period. When Jesus said this, when Mark wrote this down, when the Romans read what he wrote, they knew he was talking about taking up a cross in order to be executed. That's the only reason anyone took up a cross. You know who didn't take up a cross? A Roman citizen. It was convicted criminals who were being executed, non-Roman citizens. And ultimately, they had to carry, normally it was the cross beam, they had to carry that to their place of execution, and they would parade them through town. And everybody knew that person is being executed by Rome. So if we take a step back and consider what we looked at last week, Peter says, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. And they think they know what that means. And he says, no, you don't know what that means. Christ has to suffer and die and rise again the third day. No, he rebukes him. No, that, that's not for you. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. So for him to talk about taking up his cross, to submit to Rome, no, that's, that's the government you're supposed to come overthrow. This is so foreign. This would have been mind-blowing to them. Now, what is the cross you and I are supposed to carry? It's not 
the trials and hardships of life. Everybody, saved, unsaved, disciple, non-disciple, deals with that, right? It's not that demanding boss or your overly strict teacher at school. It's not your mother-in-law or your spouse. That's not your cross, folks. It's not that neighbor you can't get along with, with the barking dog. It's not that. What is it? It's the shame, it's the suffering that disciples endure because they are related to Jesus. They have a relationship with him. And they're willing to endure shame and suffering up to and including death. This is, this is beyond our frame of reference, I think. In the Western church, here in the United States, in this time period at least, the idea of suffering and having it cost something for being a follower of Christ, it doesn't compute very well for us. But there are other places around this planet where today, if you claim the name of Christ, if you become a follower of Jesus, you are going to be shunned by your family or worse. There are places they will try to or will kill you for becoming a follower of Christ. That's what this is talking about. David Guzik asked, how would we receive it if Jesus said, walk down death row daily and follow me? That's what he's telling them, putting it in a modern wording. Are there any places in Scripture, any place else that talks about this? Yes. Romans 12, 1. Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We're supposed to be a living sacrifice. Galatians 2.20 is even more pointed. Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Are we getting the idea of what it's like to deny yourself and take up your cross? Because that's what he's calling us to do. We better know what it is. To be crucified with Christ and continue to live, to live as a living sacrifice. So we have these three statements in verse 34. The first two are one-time actions, the way the verbs go. The verb tense says that you are supposed to deny yourself, take up your cross. Now the parallel in Luke says daily, so it's not that we don't that we do it once and we're done, but they're one-time events. But the language shifts on this third one. Continue to follow me. It's a continuous action. So when he says, follow me, you could also say, so let him keep following me. Let him keep denying himself, saying no to himself and yes to God. That concept has to continue as long as we are following Jesus. No to myself, yes to God. Not obeying my every whim and desire, obeying God. Edmund Hebert put it something like this, Christian discipleship is a personal relationship to Christ and it is expressed in continuing obedience to him. I have a relationship with God. 
So as I walk with him, I'm going to continue to obey him. Our second point for this morning is that following Jesus is worth the cost. Remember that structure? We have the main statement in verse 34, and then we have reason one, reason two, reason three, reason four. For this is true, for this is true, for this cause, because of this. That's what he's saying. These verses explain the requirements Jesus makes in verse 34. So this is verse 35 now. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. These are paradox statements, aren't they? It's the opposite of what you would think it would be. Jesus often made statements like that. John MacArthur said, those who pursue a life of ease, of comfort, and of acceptance by the world will not find eternal life. That's a bold statement. If we are seeking to be part of the world, to love the world, because remember, James tells us that to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. John wrote in his first epistle, don't love the world, don't love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So as we continue pursuing our life of ease, I'm pursuing my own agenda, I want to have everything I can get in this world, you're doing it to the detriment of the eternal. Because this says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. I mentioned a minute ago that David Guzik is comparing this to death row. He said, it sounds strange to say you will never live until you walk down death row with Jesus, but that's the idea. You can't gain resurrection life without dying first. There cannot be a resurrection without a death. There can't be. Jesus couldn't rise again until he had died. We cannot have resurrection life given to us by Jesus through the Holy Spirit until we have died. We have recognized, I am dead. You say, what are you talking about? Ephesians chapter 1 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no life in us. A fancy term for that, theologically, is regeneration. He gives life. He resurrects us from the dead. But what's he saying here? You've got to figure out that you're dead. Because if you pursue, think of Solomon. Think of the book of Ecclesiastes. I searched for everything. He went after wealth. He went after women. He could have anything he wanted. He had it all. Anything his heart desired. And it was empty. At the end of the day, it didn't matter. What matters? Do I have a relationship with God? Am I going to have an eternity with Christ or am I going to have an eternity apart from Christ? I mentioned I believe he is addressing this primarily to, certainly alongside his believing disciples, he's definitely applying it to the unsaved, whoever made up that crowd. And one reason I think that is that this word save, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels, will save it. That word save means preserve. It means to be saved to eternal life. And while I'm saying that, I probably should back up and say, 
this isn't prerequisites. I have to do this, this, and this in order to be saved. No. But I have to come to realize I can't save myself. I have to come to him. I have to die to myself in order to see life in him. He will give us life in our sin. Did you see the motivation for discipleship there? To lose your life for God's sake, for Christ's sake, and for the gospel's for my relationship with God and my relationship with my fellow man, to share the good news with them. Verse 36 continues the idea. Second statement. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Gain versus lose. What are we talking about when we say soul? The real person? What makes me, Bob, and what makes you, you? The part of you that's going to live somewhere forever? in heaven with God or in hell, separated from God? That's what we mean by soul. What will it profit if you have everything? I mentioned Solomon a minute ago. You have everything your heart could desire, but you lose your soul. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses, forfeits, suffers the loss of his own soul? The answer is nothing. The next question, verse 37, follows up on it. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? The answer again is nothing. Finish this statement for me. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. That's just to get you thinking that direction. That doesn't actually have anything to do with the verse. But one of my commentators wrote that based on this verse, losers are keepers. We may lose in this life, so to speak, but we're going to gain in eternity. And let's be honest, in our world right now, it doesn't cost a lot. People may make fun of you. Most of us in this room have never faced physical violence or abuse for our faith. But what's the worst that could happen? If I have Christ, the worst that can happen is somebody can kill me. And that's not a loss. That's a win. That's an eternal gain. That's what Paul said. Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him the son of man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels what does that mean to be ashamed of me and my words well we can reject jesus right now i don't want anything to do with that you say i'm a sinner fine i'm a sinner that doesn't mean I want Jesus. I don't, I'm very happy with my life the way it is right now. I don't want to change anything. And you can do that. You can reject him because you may think, no, it, it has a cost. And that's the point of today. There's a cost to following Christ. But it's worth it. But you may not think it's worth it. You think that price is too high. I'll be made fun of. I'll lose this. I'll have to change this part of my lifestyle. 
I'll have to stop doing that. I'll have to stop going there. I'm not doing that. I'm not willing to give that up. If we choose to reject Jesus now with our words and actions, this is saying that when he comes in judgment, because that's what it's describing, when he comes in his second coming, he will reject us. You're ashamed of Jesus now? He will be ashamed of you later. That's what this is saying. Side note, this is the first time Jesus has talked about his second coming in the book of Mark. And we'll come back and talk about it a lot when we get to chapter 13. The chapter breaks weren't part of Mark's gospel originally. And this next statement, this always gives me great delight when I come to this kind of statement, but commentaries say this is one of the most hard-to-understand statements in the book of Mark, this next verse. I don't think it's all that hard, but there have been lots of discussions on what it means. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. First off, let's talk about taste death. That is a Hebrew idiom that means to die. But the, the picture is drinking poison. That's the idea, that you're physical death. You are tasting death in that way. But it, when he says, some standing here won't do that, they won't face physical death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. What does that mean? That's what we're going to cover next time. The transfiguration. Three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, are the some who are standing here who will not die until they see the kingdom of God coming with power. They got to see the kingdom of God present with power, and we'll cover that next time. But what's he saying? If I can work backward here for a minute. Chapter 9, verse 1, he's saying, I'm going to come in glory. Back up a verse. When I come in glory... I will be ashamed of those who in this life were ashamed of me. And then the three previous statements. If I want to save my life, I'm going to lose it. If, I want to, if I'm willing to lose myself, I'm going to find my life. I can't give anything in exchange for my soul. If I have everything this world has to offer and I lose my soul, then I've profited nothing. Do you understand the mindset? Do you know what he's saying? Perhaps you've read some of what Bonhoeffer wrote during World War II. Believer, suffered for Christ, did what he could to protect Jews. Here's what he wrote. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. That doesn't make bumper stickers, guys. That's not very palatable, is it? It's not a good marketing campaign. But it's true. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. Well, let's talk about death. Because that's what Jesus said. And we have to understand, I am dead where I am in my sin. I need a resurrection. I have to come to him. He's the only one who can do that. And for many people, their greatest fear is death. 
So think about that. If my greatest fear is death and I realize I've already reckoned myself to be dead, I have nothing left to fear. That, that's what I've always heard in surveys, that people are most affair, afraid of dying and of speaking in public. Those are the two top ones, usually. If I recognize I'm already dead, but I have life in Christ, I have eternal life, nothing can harm me. In the words of Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not height, not depth, not persecutions. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. As we end, I would like to share some verses from Philippians. This is Philippians chapter 3. Paul writing, of course. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. I'm going to stop there. What's he saying? The stuff doesn't mean anything to me. The world system around me doesn't mean anything to me. Those things that would have promoted me, because remember, he was, he was a Pharisee. He was in the upper echelon. He was at the top of his game as a religious leader of that day. So much so that he was persecuting those who were followers of Christ. But he said, the things that would have excelled me, would have promoted me, those I've counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. How will I be found in him? Not having my own righteousness. I don't have any good works to offer. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. To what end? What's the purpose? Verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. You say, yes, I want to know God. I want to know the power of the resurrection. What else does he say? What else does he say? And the fellowship of his sufferings. He's not even finished there. Being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I don't know about you, but I, I read that. Power of his resurrection, yeah, fellowship of his sufferings wait what that's exactly what jesus is calling his disciples to that's exactly what he's inviting what we would call as unsaved people unbelievers to that's not a feel-good message as i said a minute ago that's not a good marketing campaign but it's biblical truth and I don't want to dwell on the negative so much today that you don't realize it's worthwhile. Because what we may think is important to us now isn't going to matter in eternity. If we have an eternal perspective, then the stuff around us is not going to matter. Oh, well, that neighbor had a nicer boat. That neighbor had a nicer house. So what? He's building a mansion for me. He's going to prepare a place for you and me. It'll be a perfect place that we'll enjoy forever. And as I understand it, I don't think there will be any upkeep we have to do on it. It's worthwhile. 
It may seem like it's a big cost, but in light of eternity, it's a very small cost. It's a reward for us to be able to spend eternity with God in heaven. Following Jesus is costly, but following Jesus is worth the cost. So these three questions apply whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. Have you denied yourself? Have you taken up your cross? Are you following Jesus? I'm going to ask those one more different way. Are you going to claim a throne or a cross? Will you attempt to rule over your own life and ignore the cross of Jesus? Or will you acknowledge him as the rightful king to sit on the throne of your life and accept his cross? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I believe Jesus was addressing two different groups, and he knew he was, believers and unbelievers. And every Sunday that I get to stand here and preach God's word, I know that I am addressing the same two groups of people, believers and unbelievers. Is there anyone here this morning who would say, Bob, I think Jesus is calling me this morning to be his disciple. I have never put my faith in him. I'm not even sure I understand what that means. But I want to follow him. I want to be his disciple. I know that I have a sin problem that I can't do anything about, but I believe that Jesus is the rescuer. He's the savior. And I'm coming to him to deal with my sin and I'm putting my faith in him. If that describes you, would you let me know that? Would you look up and make eye contact with me? You can have the salvation that he's offering freely. He invites you to come to him. And although we've been talking about how it's costly, it's not hard. You can pray where you're seated right now. Lord, I know that I've broken your laws. I know I'm a sinner. But I believe that your son Jesus is the Savior and he's my Savior. He died for my sin and he rose again and I believe that. If that's the prayer of your heart this morning and you're crying that out to God, he will save you right now. believers he was talking to his disciples too how self-denial going it's hard that battle with the flesh is daily and we're never going to have perfect victory until we're with him but if he's leading you to do something or to stop doing something this morning would you obey him You say, but that's hard. Yeah. 
He was calling his disciples and he's calling us to obey him even to the point of death. Is it going to cost you that? Probably not. But it's the willingness that he's looking for to be that living sacrifice, to say that I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Our Father, would you continue to work in hearts, convict of sin where we need that, encourage us where we need that, Lord. Give us understanding and may we rejoice in that. Lord, you are a good God. You are a kind Father. You are a merciful Savior. We praise you. Continue to lead us. May we be true disciples of yours in Jesus' name. Amen.